Well, I want this morning to speak on the, <clears throat> the story of the uh, Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The story of the Tower of Babel, I think, shows us so clearly how foolish it is for man to try to live independently from the will and purposes of God. It just doesn't work. Uh, this story is one of those climactic events in the early part of the book of Genesis which really explains um, why the modern world, our world, uh, is as it, as it is. It explains such things as why we have nations and why there are around 7,000 different languages spoken in this world. It's an ancient record of man's ability to innovate and to create technologies to build cities and great structures within those cities. It's the story of the first great empire and the power of dictators to exert their will upon peoples. Its greatest instruction to us, though, this morning is not anthropological, but theological. It's what it teaches us about the nature of God and what it teaches us about the nature of man and what it teaches us about the grace of God in the great plan of salvation. The immediate context of this story, of course, is the post-flood dispersal or dispersion of mankind. In, in Noah's great oracle, uh, in chapter 9, verses 25 and 27, Noah gives his great formative, world-shaping, history-making prophecy that um, curses Canaan to subjection to his brothers, blesses Shem, who is united with the name of the Lord, and gives this futuristic promise that the descendants of Japheth, the Gentiles, would be included in the covenant of the Lord. That one day Shem and Japheth will be united together in the Lord. Verse 27 of chapter 9 says, God will enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And chapter 10 then goes on to give us the genealogical record of how the nations of the post-flood world will develop or developed in the lines of Shem, Ham and Japheth. This reminds us, of course, of the sovereignty of God in this world. Paul speaks in Acts 17, 26 of this. He says, And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. This world is not run by accident. It's run by the sovereignty of God. Well, we read in uh, chapter 10 also of this 
man called Nimrod, the firstborn of Ham. Cush begat Nimrod, verse 8. And he began, it says here, to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, it says. This probably means he was a hunter of men rather than of uh, animals, I think. Because he was clearly the first great builder of an empire. He created his own kingdom. The empire of Babylon. Uh, verse 10 of uh, chapter 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And so the empire of Babylon under Nimrod established cities and, and built a kingdom in the Euphrates Valley. But this empire was an affront to God. He was an arrogant tyrant. 10 verse 9 reads, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words, implying his defiance to, to sin and to kill in the very face of God himself. Nimrod was the typical antichrist figure who rises arrogantly against God and against God's purposes and leads the world in rebellion against God and his will. We could describe him as, as haughty and arrogant and, pr and proud. He embodies everything that's wrong about the secular city of man. And beginning with Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar, he builds this empire which then results in Nineveh and Rehoboth and Kala. And so it seems that we need to read these verses in chapter 10 regarding Nimrod in the same breath, as it were, with the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. Because it was this Nimrod who led this dispersion, this diaspora. He led these post-flood peoples of the world on their journey from the east. Genesis 11 verse 2 says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain on the, Sh of Sh on the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Chapter 11 is an elaboration of the earlier narrative in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 speaks of what Nimrod was like, what he did, and so on. In chapter 11 we have a treatment of the same theme but from the perspective of the people who he led and who worked with him. And then just another comment on the immediate context before we move on. This Nimrod, this great empire builder, this great dictator was leading undoubtedly a very small world population. We don't really know how small, but it was by today's standards a tiny world population. It was only around uh, something around a hundred years 
since the flood had destroyed all but eight. And this man, Nimrod, full of defiance against God, perhaps smarting against the, the curse that God had put upon Canaan. I think Canaan was probably his uncle or a relative of his in any, in any way, in any sense. And this Nimrod perhaps was saying, how dare God curse my family line? How dare God say that I, my line will be a slave? I'll show God. I'll be defiant. I won't be a slave. I'll be a dictator. I'll be the mightiest man upon the earth. I'll build cities. I'll raise armies. And I'll put my fist in God's face. Well, that, dear friends, is the spirit of the evil one. That's the spirit of Antichrist. It's the satanic Antichrist rebellion against God. And we see that written all over this story of the building of the Tower of Babel. Well, Nimrod had one great advantage in leading this world population. The whole earth spoke one single language and Nimrod could bend the will of the people to his purposes and no doubt he um, connected with as all good dictators do with their own human desires for security and wealth and human pride all great empires are established and maintained through ideology a set of beliefs which shapes and controls the minds of men we, we, there's an ideology in, in the modern world that is shaping most people it's shaping the way pe the media it's shaping the way people relate to each other it's relating what people feel free to say and not and feel that they can say and the driving ideology behind the building of this city and the tower is very clear from verses 2 to 4, which I just read quickly once more. We see here the driving philosophy and ideology behind the building of this tower. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain on the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another go to let us make brick and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar and they said go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth well, the features then of this ideology in this empire can be described in, in these following ways, I think. Or at least the characteristics of this ideology can be described in this way. First of all, we notice a willful and sinful disobedience against God. You see, what can be said of this post-Diluvian world is equally true of, of, of our society today. God has a clear 
and had a clear purpose and plan for the world, for the nations. And he has a clear way for us that we should live and we deliberately rebel against his will. Man at heart is a rebel against God. You see, the decision the people made to settle in the plain in the land of Shinar was an act of rebellion against God. It wasn't just a, a good idea. It was a, an act of rebellion against God's expressed purpose and will, which was set out in Genesis 9, verse 1. He had said to these post-flood peoples that they should be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. This, of course, was a reiteration or repeat of the command given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, verse 28. God's plan was not for man to settle, but to fill the earth with his image through his image bearers, subduing the world, exploring the world, settling into the uh, geographical locations envisaged in Genesis 10. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. That was man's original mandate repeated after the flood. But here these people, well, they'd begun to obey. They'd got to Shinar. And then what happens? They stop and they settle. The goal of Babylon was to resist any further scattering of the peoples over the earth and instead to create a city where the achievement of a united and integrated people would be centralised in direct opposition and rebellion against God's will. Instead of recognising that this is God's world to be run in his way, they tried to construct the city of man. They tried to construct their way. The city where man is the centre and the sum of all existence and purpose. The ideology which today drives secular humanism, which drives false religion, which drives consumerism, which drives all the isms that we were confronted to with today as Christian people, it all comes from this sinful, rebellious heart of man, where man wants man to be on the throne instead of God to be on the throne. And this mindset was illustrated even in their choice of building materials because in that part of the world there was abundant supply of, of, of natural building materials. God provided in that area huge numbers of rocks which could be shaped and formed into beautiful structures. And we know from Egyptian and later Babylonian history that those heathen nations they built with bricks and invariably these projects were an attempt to, to exalt and validate the name of their king or of their pharaoh and often the name of the king would be etched into, into the bricks as they laid them and it was a way of, of praising 
their king, deifying their king. It's the same spirit and ideology that we see in the citizens in, in Christ's parable of the nobleman who, who went into a far country and told his servants to occupy till I come. But in Luke 19 verse 14 we, say, we see the same spirit in these citizens as we see in the builders of Babylon's tower. His citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's the same attitude as we see in the opening verses of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder or cast away their cords from us. It's the same spirit that was in the Jews and the Roman soldiers who crucified the Lord of glory. R.C. Sproul famously describes sin as cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. Every sin, no matter how seemingly Insignificant. It is an act of rebellion against a good God who reigns and rules over us. The truth is this spirit of Nimrod, this spirit of Babel, this antichrist spirit um, is, in, is, is in every single person born of natural generation. Treachery ultimately comes from a person's hatred of or resentment against their nation or at least their community. And, you know, at heart, sin comes from hatred toward God. We're not um, just people who make wrong choices. We, by nature, sinners and we're all born this way, are haters of God. Sin is enmity against God and a refusal to obey his will. It's described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8-7 as in this way, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's the natural state of man and of every single person outside of Christ. It's true of you today if you don't know him. That's why the gospel is presented by the Apostle Paul in terms of reconciliation. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. It's only in Jesus Christ that you can be reconciled to God, that this enmity within the human heart 
can be overcome and destroyed and there can be this reconciliation secondly this another characteristic of this uh, Babel spirit shall we say on display here is that uh, this was an ideology that was clearly idolatrous it was idolatrous verse 4 we read of the purpose of making all these bricks and they said go to let us build us a, a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven they began to build this enormous structure up to the heavens our mental image of this tower um, is influenced of course by um, descriptions of ziggurats Uh, Herodotus in his histories first wrote about some of these ziggurats and we imagine this kind of circular stairway up to the heavens but whatever the architecture may have been the idolatrous purpose of of this tower was clear it was a human effort to do the divine work of establishing a connection between God and man through human autonomy you see they were, by so doing they were, they were trying to connect not really with the real God of Adam and Noah and Shem but with the God of their own imaginations that's really what idolatry is and no doubt Nimrod was there manipulating the people because he knew um, he knew that this religious impulse in the, in the people had to be satisfied. The, the most clever dictators don't try and destroy religion because you can't destroy that impulse in the human heart. Uh, the clever ones twist it and manipulate it like Nimrod. Very possibly the purpose of the tower was to get as close as possible to the stars and to the moon Uh, the stars and the moon and the sun are often the starting point for false worship but they're rarely the end of it because even with Nimrod we know later that um, he morphed into the chief god of, of the Babylonians Marduk and the Bible traces all false religions back to Babylon the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth and right here in Genesis 1 they rejected the knowledge of the true God and created a false religion a religion marked by idolatry and of course we can dismiss them and we can say well we're modern we're sophisticated we we wouldn't be idol worshippers but this tendency to idolatry is present in every single human heart we all worship whether we're Christians or whatever we all worship because it is innate to us the God given instinct to worship is present and if we reject the true worship of God this impulse becomes perverted and twisted and we end up 
either worshipping ourselves or a false religion or, or, or materialism or something. We all become idol worshippers. The words of Romans 1.21 following apply to every single human being. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man and to birds and their four-footed beasts and creeping things. Well, of course, sophisticated uh, Westerners, we could say, may not have wooden idols, although I'm struck by even our neighbours. I can see a, a Buddha in her, in, in her garden. It's that even such crude uh, idol worship seems to be coming back. But uh, even if we don't worship wooden idols, John Calvin taught that there is no end to the ingenuity of, of man to create idols from his own heart. He, he wrote in his institutes, the heart and mind of man is a perpetual forge of idols. And it's true of us, isn't it? If, we, if we're not focused on the Lord, we, we, we go through one kind of... Um, interest to the next and our heart is we can always hear the uh, you know the hammering of the of, of the tools within us creating the next idol and it's coming out of our hearts where by nature we worship idols unless we're a christian the new testament definition of idolatry is very challenging because it shows that we are all capable of idol worship we don't have to be a primitive people Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, covetousness, that do not covet command, gets everybody. It got the Apostle Paul, that man who, who and I believe him, he said that he, he was, according to the law, blameless. Externally, he, he hadn't broken the law. But he says in Romans 7, when it came to that command, do not covet. He says he, he, he had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known sin, I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And it slew him. If we've managed to avoid all the other sins, and that's, you know, I'm not saying it's not possible never to have stolen and, and what have you, but everyone is coveted. Everyone has sinned internally and, and lusted after something. And therefore, if you break, one law of the Ten Commandments, a moral law of God, you've broken, you're guilty of the whole law. James teaches that. The ideology revealed here then um, displays the idolatrous nature of their purposes and ideology. Thirdly and quickly, the ideology revealed here shows the pride and self-sufficiency of man 
You see, I believe the purpose of this tower was not to get near to, to God as such, but really to make themselves gods. To become equal with God. They tried to build a city that would sustain life without God so that they could live their lives independently from his provision. And this um, man-centric, self-sufficient philosophy is seen in, in, the, in the wording here. Verse 3, it says, let us make brick. Verse 4, let us build. Verse 4 again, let us make a name. Jude, uh, in Jude, verse 6, um, Jude speaks of the pride of Satan and of the angels where they decided that they also had a better plan than God had for them. It says in Jude 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. You see, God had a, designed a place for these angels, but they rebelled. They left their own habitation. And in the same way, man's habitation is designed by God. Psalm 8 explains that God put Adam in a lofty place over creation, a very high position, but he said he was a little lower than the angels. That was his position. His place was to be upon the earth. Man's domain is on planet earth, not in heaven. Psalm 8 verse 5, For thou hast made him a, a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. But these people wanted to, they wanted to be above the angels. They wanted to leave their estate their natural habitation and to build up to God and be like God equal with God you see God defines our habitation God defines you and me God names Adam in the Bible in the beginning he formed Adam of the dust of the ground and man has no right to name himself N naming in the Old Testament means something different than it does today it was, it was a shaping, forming, moulding thing for, to name it was to describe someone's character and in, in many ways to, to make decisions about someone a man has no right to name himself he is set above everything else, but a little lower than the angels. But these builders wanted to create their own identity. They said, let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be scattered as God planned, but we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to choose our own destiny. We want to become immortal and, and gain a, a name among the gods. Well, isn't that what's happening today? Human pride is doing exactly the same thing. We think what we can do without God. We rely on ourselves, but self-sufficiency is, is foolish pride. We don't want to be defined by God. We don't even want, many people are now not even wanting their, 
their, their gender and sex to be defined by God. They want to change that. They want to, to leave, as it were, their bounds, their natural bounds and habitation, and to name themselves. Identity politics is out of control. And we want our own name. It's all about the glory and reputation of man. And that's true of false religion too. Even in its Christian forms. Technology and science without submission to God just, to become, just becomes another brick in this tower of rebellion against God. Well, the truth is, is that we cannot flourish. If I can put it personally, you, you cannot flourish in your life if you re refuse God's plan for your life. And, and you see, in life we have two choices. We either champion our own greatness and our own name, or we champion God's greatness. We either serve God, or we, or we create a false religion where God serves us. And that's what false religion is, as much of Christianity today is. It's a self-service, supermarket-type religion where we, we turn God out at Christmas and Easter and then we turn him out at funerals and weddings. We, we pray to him when, everything, when everything's gone to pot and we're, 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 everything's gone wrong and then we, then we turn to him in prayer but he's just a tool, he's just an opiate that we take to numb the pain of life. But that's not the biblical vision of our relationship with God. He is to be our sovereign Lord over your life and mine. And the spirit of Babylon is in every single sinner outside of Christ. Christ, because we think it's within ourselves to build a tower to God through our achievement. And many people think that brick by brick, good work after good work, they can build a tower of merit that will reach up to the heavens and that their God will meet with them. But it doesn't work like that. The truth is, is that within every one of us there is this desire for worship and for truth. There's a God-shaped hole in every single human being. But most people fill that hole with perverse religion or alternatives, the worship of self. It does not satisfy. False religion, superstition, pleasure-seeking, love of money cannot bring real human flourishing. Because this is God's world. And it's made according to God's plan. And because you're God's creature, made according to his plan and to his purpose. You are made in the image and likeness of God with certain innate powers and desires. And these speak to you day after day. They, the voice of conscience. Reminds you of, of, of who you really are. The, the, it's like the, the whisper of Eden is still there in your ear. And yet 
We suppress that voice and we push it down and ignore it and we go on and deliberately rebel and sin and sin and sin. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, explained to them that just like these uh, post-Diluvian builders of the tower, it is impossible to build a structure that will reach to God. He said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. He had seen a superscription on on one of the altars to the unknown God. And he points them to the God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. The great truth of the Christian gospel is that the sovereign God who orders life is not far from any of us if we seek him. If we repent and turn to that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, the one God raised from the dead. He is the way to God. The name Babylon or Babel is derived from the Akkadian word Babylu, meaning gate of God. But it was a false way to God. There is only one way to God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10:7, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He's the only gate, the only door. Well, very quickly and briefly, we'll come on to the second and final point of this sermon. I think not only does this story teach us something of the ideology that drove this building of the tower, this story teaches us about the sovereignty of God and his gracious plan of salvation. The sovereignty of God and his gracious plan of salvation. In verse 5, and, and the irony is, uh, is written on the page, isn't it? Verse 5 of chapter 11. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Obviously this is a figure of speech because God doesn't need to come down to see anything. But... The irony is clear. The scripture speaks often of God deriding the pride of man. This tower which man thought was so big and so high. God says, well, I'll have to come down. It's so puny, I'll have to come down to be able to see it. Psalm 2, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, but the Lord shall have them in derision. And with one masterstroke, um, He ruins their plans and brings the building project to an end. Verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them. 
which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there, confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. As with all God's judgments in Scripture, this action of confusing the languages was was, was a great judgment upon the people, upon sinners, but it was a great blessing for God's people. That, that was true of the, of the f- judgment of the flood as well. It was a great, terrible judgment on the world, but it was a great blessing for the remnant of God's people because eight were saved. Just imagine here, this people speaking one language, You imagine the foreman giving instructions about measurements and about materials, about the order of work, um, things are requested and so on, all in a common language. And suddenly people can't understand each other. People begin to speak in discrete languages according to the, to the nations that they've been put within. And it's impossible to continue the build, the building project, and, and, and it comes to an end. And so the Lord, it says, scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the, the, of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. And the nations, in a way, were forced then to comply with the allocations given to them in Genesis 10. God destroyed their attempts at a false world religion, and the tower became a relic. God's judgment on Babel was a restraint upon this accelerating Antichrist movement, which would have snuffed out God's plan of redemption. Unchecked and at that rate, the seed of the woman would have been eradicated from the face of the earth and the plan of redemption derailed. But God in his sovereignty and in his saving plan of redemption allowed his plan to unfold, to continue through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through the prophets, through John the Baptist. Until Messiah comes and we read the glorious words of Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. And the Lord Jesus taught us that the only way for man to reach heaven was for him to come down to the earth. Not this time to judge Not this time to confuse, but to save and to give us a true knowledge of God. God preserved his plan. Jesus came and he came down. John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Dear friends, The Lord Jesus is the true and only tower. He's the only true temple. 
In him all the fullness of deity dwells and he became flesh and dwelt among us. God came down to us. He is the true axis between earth and heaven and heaven and earth. Jesus said to Nathanael in John 1.51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus and his saving work upon the cross is the only true way. Not through self-service religion, not through the autonomy of man, not through good works, not through building structures even. It is in Jesus Christ. The only real security and safety and deliverance from sin is in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 18 verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. You see, don't try and build your own tower to God. Run into the tower of Jesus Christ. And there you will be saved and be safe. Man's desire for unity and security is only really found in Jesus Christ. In the course of time, this confusion of languages would be reversed through the pure language of the Christian gospel. The prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3 verse 10 declared, For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And on the day of Pentecost, the curse of Babel was reversed. The pure language was restored and a new mankind began to be gathered into one family. God unites men, truly unites men, but only in Jesus Christ and only in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. God dwells among men only by the Holy Spirit in his church. And in the Holy Spirit there is no confusion. In the New Covenant it says they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. In the Christian Gospel God ties the scattered and confused into one body and he uses new Christians as, as living stones, not bricks, living stones in, and he builds one temple. That's what Paul speaks of in, in Ephesians. He says, therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints of, of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You see, God knows how to build the true tower, the true temple. It's a Christian church, the body of Christ. It's the temple with foundations which far outshines and outlasts the towers and temples of man. 
in Christ, in the true church, his body, all the glory goes to his name. It needs to go to him. We don't make a name for ourselves like those tower builders. We glorify his name. We love to sing and to say his name. We don't build for ourselves, do we? We build under God as workers and co-workers with him. And our work is to fulfill the, the updated mandate, really. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And by, and by so doing, we should fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's, that's our mission as Christian people. Well, in closing, there is then a choice for you today. There's a choice to build your own tower up to God or build with God. To live your life according to his mandate or your mandate. To try and make a name for yourself or, or live for his name. To worship idols or to worship the true God of heaven. And to change you have to begin with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to turn to him and ask him to deal with your problem of sin. He is the only saviour of sinners. He came down from heaven to earth. Who is God and Lord of all. He came down to reach you and lift you up to him. You'll never get to him on your own. He has to come down and he has to lift you up and bring him to yourself. And he promises you, he promises me if we're his, in Revelation 3.12, that him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com That's grace2seekers at gmail.com Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.